The Red Pyramid Chapter 1 A Death at the Needle We only have a few hours, so listen carefully. If you're hearing this story, you're already in danger. Sadie and I might be your only chance. Go to the school. Find the locker. I won't tell you which school or which locker, because if you're the right person, you'll find it. The combination is 13, 32, 33. By the time you finish listening, you'll know what those numbers mean. <clears throat> Just remember, the story we're about to tell you isn't complete yet. How it ends will depend on you. The most important thing, when you open the package and find what's inside, don't keep it longer than a week. Sure, it'll be tempting. I mean, it will grant you almost unlimited power. But if you possess it too long, it will consume you. Learn its secrets quickly and pass it on. Hide it for the next person, the way Sadie and I did for you. Then be prepared for your life to get very interesting. Okay, Sadie is telling me to stop stalling and get on with the story. Fine. I guess it started in London the night our dad blew up the British Museum. My name is Carter Kane. I'm 14 and my home is a suitcase. You think I'm kidding? Since I was eight years old, my dad and I have traveled the world. I was born in L.A., but my dad's an archaeologist, so his work takes him all over. Mostly we go to Egypt, since that's his specialty. Go into a bookstore, find a book about Egypt. There's a pretty good chance it was written by Dr. Julius Kane. You want to know how Egyptians pulled the brains out of mummies, or built the pyramids, or cursed King Tut's tomb? My dad is your man. Of course, there are other reasons my dad moved around so much, but I didn't know his secret back then. I didn't go to school. My dad homeschooled me. If you can call it homeschooling when you don't have a home. He sort of taught me whatever he thought was important, so I learned a lot about Egypt and basketball stats and my dad's favorite musicians. I read a lot, too. Pretty much anything I could get my hands on, from my dad's history books to fantasy novels because I spent a lot of time sitting around in hotels and airports and dig sites in foreign countries where I didn't know anybody. My dad was always telling me to put the book down and play some ball. You ever try to start a game of pickup basketball in Aswan, Egypt? It's not easy. Anyway, my dad trained me early to keep all my possessions in a single suitcase that fits in an airplane's overhead compartment. My dad packed the same way, except he was allowed an extra work bag for his archaeology tools. Rule number one, I was not allowed to look in his work bag. That's a rule I never broke until the day of the explosion. It happened on Christmas Eve. We were in London for visitation day with my sister, Sadie. See, dad's only allowed two days a year with her. One in the winter, one in the summer, because our grandparents hate him. After our mom died, her parents, our grandparents, had this big court battle with dad. After six lawyers, two fistfights, and a near-fatal attack with a spatula, don't ask, they won the right to keep Sadie with them in England. She was only six, two years younger than me, and they couldn't keep us both. At least that was their excuse for not taking me. So Sadie was raised as a British school kid, and I traveled around with my dad. We only saw Sadie twice a year, which was fine with me. 
Shut up, Sadie. Yes, I'm getting to that part. So anyway, my dad and I had just flown into Heathrow after a couple of delays. It was a drizzly cold afternoon. The whole taxi ride into the city, my dad seemed kind of nervous. Now, my dad is a big guy. He wouldn't think anything would, could make him nervous. He has dark brown skin like mine, piercing brown eyes, a bald head, and a goatee. So he looks like a buff evil scientist. That afternoon, he wore his cashmere winter coat and his best brown suit, the one he used for public lectures. Usually, he exudes so much confidence that he dominates any room he walks into. But sometimes, like that afternoon, I saw another side to him that I didn't really understand. He kept looking over his shoulder like we were being hunted. Dad? I asked as we were getting off the A40. What's wrong? No sign of them, he muttered. Then he must have realized he'd spoken aloud because it looked at me kind of startled. Nothing, Carter. Everything's fine. Which bothered me because my dad's a terrible liar. I always knew when he was hiding something. But I also knew no amount of pestering would get the truth out of him. He was probably trying to protect me, though from what I didn't know. Sometimes I wondered if he had some dark secret in his past. Some old enemies following him, maybe? But the ideas seemed ridiculous. Dad was just an archaeologist. The other thing that troubled me, Dad was clutching his work bag. Usually when he does that, it means we're in danger. Like the time gunmen stormed our hotel in Cairo, I heard shots coming from the lobby and ran downstairs to check on my dad. By the time I got there, he was just calmly zipping up his work bag while three unconscious gunmen hung from their feet from the chandelier, their robes falling over their heads so you could see their boxer shorts. Dad claimed not to have witnessed anything, and in the end, the policeman blamed a freak chandelier malfunction. Another time, we got caught in a riot in Paris. My dad found the nearest parked car, pushed me into the back seat, and told me to stay put. I pressed myself against the floorboards and kept my eyes shut real tight. I could hear Dad in the driver's seat, rummaging in his bag, mumbling something to himself, while the mob yelled and destroyed things outside. A few minutes later, he told me it was safe to get up. Every other car on the block had been overturned and set on fire. Our car had been freshly washed and polished, and several 20-euro notes had been tucked under the windshield wipers. Anyway, I'd come to respect the bag. It was our good luck charm. But when my dad kept it close, it meant we were going to need good luck. We drove to the city center, heading east toward my grandparents' flat. We passed the golden gates of Buckingham Palace, the big stone column at Trafalgar Square. London is a pretty cool place, but after you traveled for so long, all cities start to blend together. Other kids I meet sometimes say, Wow, you're so lucky you get to travel so much. But it's not like we spend our time sightseeing or have a lot of money to travel in style. We've stayed in some pretty rough places, and we hardly ever stay anywhere longer than a few days. Most of the time, it feels like we're fugitives rather than tourists. I mean, you wouldn't think my dad's work was dangerous. He does lectures on topics like, Can Egyptian magic really kill you? 
and favorite punishments in the Egyptian underworld, and other stuff most people wouldn't care about. But like I said, that's the other side to him. He's always very cautious, checking every hotel room before he lets me walk into it. He'll dart into a museum to see some artifacts, take a few notes, and rush out again like he's afraid to be caught on the security cameras. One time, when I was younger, we raced across the Charles de Gaulle airport to catch a last-minute flight, and Dad didn't relax until the plane was off the ground. I asked him point-blank what he was running from, and he looked at me like I just pulled the pin out of a grenade. For a second, I was scared he might actually tell me the truth. Then he said, Carter, it's nothing as if nothing were the most terrible thing in the world. After that, I decided maybe it was better not to ask questions. My grandparents, the Fausts, live in a housing development near Canary Wharf, right on the banks of the River Thames. The taxi let us off at the curb, and my dad asked the driver to wait. We were halfway up the walk when Dad froze. He turned and looked behind us. What? I asked. Then I saw the man in the trench coat. He was across the street, leaning against a big dead tree. He was barrel-shaped, with skin the color of roasted coffee. His coat and black pinstripe suit looked expensive. He had long braided hair and wore a black fedora pulled down low over his dark, round glasses. He reminded me of a jazz musician. The kind my dad would always drag me to see in concert. Even though I couldn't see his eyes, I got the impression he was watching us. He might have been an old friend or colleague of Dad's. No matter where we went, Dad was always running into people he knew. But it did seem strange that the guy was waiting here, outside my grandparents, and he didn't look happy. Carter, my dad said, go on ahead. But... Get your sister. I'll meet you back at the taxi. He crossed the street towards the man in the trench coat, which left me with two choices. Follow my dad and see what was going on, or do what I was told. I decided on the slightly less dangerous path. I went to retrieve my sister. Before I could even knock, Sadie opened the door. Light as usual, she said. She was holding her cat Muffin, who'd been a going-away gift from Dad six years before. Muffin never seemed to get older or bigger. She had fuzzy yellow and black fur like a miniature leopard, alert yellow eyes and pointy ears that were too tall for her head. A silver Egyptian pendant dangled from her collar. She didn't look anything like a Muffin, but Zadie had been little when she named her, so I guess you have to cut her some slack. Sadie hadn't changed much either since last summer. As I'm recording this, she's standing next to me glaring, so I better be careful how I describe her. You would never guess she's my sister. First of all, she'd been living in England so long she had a British accent. Second, she takes after our mom, who was white, so Sadie's skin is much lighter than mine. She has straight caramel-colored hair, Not exactly blonde, but not brown, which she usually dyes with streaks of bright colors. That day, it had red streaks down the left side. Her eyes are blue. I'm serious. Blue eyes. Just like our mom's. She's only 12, but
Well, she's exactly as tall as me. Which is really annoying. She was chewing gum, as usual, dressed for her day out with Dad in battered jeans, a leather jacket, and combat boots. Like she was going to a concert and was hoping to stomp on some people. She had headphones dangling around her neck, in case we bored her. Okay, she didn't hit me, so I guess I did an okay job of describing her. Our plane was late, I told her. She popped a bubble, rubbed Muffin's head, and tossed the cat inside. Gran, going out! From somewhere in the house, Grandma Foss said something I couldn't make out. Probably, don't let them in. Sadie closed the door and regarded me as if I were a dead mouse. Her cat had just dragged in. So here you are again. Yep. Come on then, she sighed. Let's get on with it. That's the way she was. No, hi, how have you been the last six months? So glad to see you, or anything. But that was okay with me. When you see each other only twice a year, it's like you're distant cousins rather than siblings. We had absolutely nothing in common except our parents. We trudged down the steps. I was thinking how she smelled like a combination of old people's house and bubblegum. When she stopped so abruptly, I ran into her. Who's that? She asked. I'd almost forgotten about the dude in the trench coat. He and my dad were standing across the street next to the big tree, having what looked like a serious argument. Dad's back was turned, so I couldn't see his face, but he gestured with his hands like he does when he's agitated. The other guy scowled and shook his head. Dunno, I said. He was there when we pulled up. He looks familiar. Sadie frowned like she was trying to remember. Come on. Dad wants us to wait in the cab, I said even though I knew it was no use. Sadie was already on the move. Instead of going straight across the street, she dashed up the sidewalk for half a block, ducking behind cars, and crossed to the opposite side and crutched down under a low stone wall. She started sneaking towards our dad. I didn't have much choice but to follow her example, even though it made me feel kind of stupid. Six years in England, I muttered, and she thinks she's James Bond. Sadie swatted me without looking back, and I kept creeping forward. A couple more steps, and we were right behind the big dead tree. I could hear my dad on the other side saying, Have to, Amos. You know it's the right thing. No, said the other man, who must have been Amos. His voice was deep and even. Very insistent. His accent was American. If I don't stop you, Julius, they will. The per unk is shadowing you. Sadie turned to me and mouthed the words, Per what? I shook my head, just as mystified. Let's get out of here, I whispered, because I figured we'd be spotted any minute and get in serious trouble. Sadie, of course, ignored me. They don't know my plan my father was saying. By the time they figure it out... And the children? Amos asked. The hair stood up on the back of my neck. What about them? I've made arrangements to protect them, my dad said. Besides, if I don't do this, we'll, we're all in danger. Now back off. I can't, Julius. Then it's a duel you want? 
Dad's tone turned deadly serious. You could never beat me, Amos. I hadn't seen my dad get violent since the great spatula incident, and I wasn't anxious to see a repeat of that. But the two men seemed to be edging towards a fight. Before I could react, Sadie popped up and shouted, Dad! He looked surprised when she tackle-hugged him, but not nearly as surprised as the other guy, Amos. He backed up so quickly, he tripped over his own trench coat. He'd taken off his glasses. I couldn't help thinking that Sadie was right. He did look familiar, like a very distant memory. I, I must be going, he said. He straightened his fedora and lumbered down the road. Our dad watched him go. He kept one arm protectively around Sadie and one hand inside the work bag slung over his shoulder. Finally, when Amos disappeared around the corner, Dad relaxed. He took his hand out of the bag and smiled at Sadie. Hello, sweetheart. Sadie pushed away from him and crossed her arms. Oh, now it's sweetheart, is it? You're late. Visitation day is nearly over. What was that about? Who's Amos? And what's the per unk? Dad stiffened. He glanced at me like he was wondering how much we'd overheard. It's nothing, he said, trying to sound upbeat. I have a wonderful evening planned. Who'd like a private tour of the British Museum? Sadie slumped in the back of the taxi between Dad and me. I can't believe it, she grumbled. One evening together and you want to do research. Dad tried for a smile. Sweetheart, it'll be fun. The curator of the Egyptian collection personally invited... Right, big surprise. Sadie blew a strand of red-streaked hair out of her face. Christmas Eve, and we're going to see some old moldy relics from Egypt. Do you ever think about anything else? Dad didn't get mad. He never gets mad at Sadie. He just stared out the window at the darkening sky and the rain. Yes, he said quietly. I do. Whenever Dad got quiet like that and stared off into nowhere, I knew he was thinking about our mom. The last few months, it had been happening a lot. I'd walk into our hotel room and find him with his cell phone in his hands, Mom's picture smiling up at him from the screen. Her hair tucked under a headscarf, her blue eyes startlingly bright against the desert backdrop. Or we'd be at some dig site. I'd see Dad staring at the horizon, and I'd know he was remembering how he'd met her. Two young scientists in the Valley of the Kings on a dig to discover a lost tomb. Dad was an archaeologist. Mom was an anthropologist looking for ancient DNA. He told me the story a thousand times. Our taxi snaked its way along the banks of the Thames, Just past Waterloo Bridge, my dad tensed. Driver, he said, stop here a moment. The cabbie pulled over on the Victoria embankment. What is it, dad? I asked. He got out of the cab like he hadn't heard me. When Sadie and I joined him on the sidewalk, he was staring up at Cleopatra's needle. In case you've never seen it, the needle is an obelisk, not a needle, and it doesn't have anything to do with Cleopatra. I guess the British just thought the name sounded cool when they brought it to London. It's about 70 feet tall, 
which would have been really impressive back in ancient Egypt. But on the Thames, with all the tall buildings around, it looks small and sad. You could drive right by it and not even realize you'd just passed something that was a thousand years older than the city of London. God. Sadie walked around in a frustrated circle. Do we have to stop for every monument? My dad stared at the top of the obelisk. I had to see it again, he murmured, where it happened. A freezing wind blew off the river. I wanted to get back in the cab, but my dad was really starting to worry me. I'd never seen him so distracted. What, Dad? I asked. What happened here? The last place I saw her... Sadie stopped pacing. She scowled at me uncertainly, then back at Dad. Hang on. Do you mean Mum? Dad brushed Sadie's hair behind her ear. And she was so surprised she didn't even push him away. I I felt like the rain had frozen me solid. Mom's death had always been a forbidden subject. I knew she died in an accident in London. I knew my grandparents blamed my dad, but no one would ever tell us the details. I'd given up asking my dad, partially because it made him so sad, partially because he absolutely refused to tell me anything. When you're older, was all he would say, which was the most frustrating response ever. You're telling us she died here, I said, at Cleopatra's Needle? What happened? He lowered his head. Dad, Sadie protested. I go past this every day, and you mean to say all this time, and I didn't even know. Do you still have your cat? Dad asked her, which seemed like a really stupid question. Of course I've still got the cat, she said. What does that have to do with anything? And your amulet? Sadie's hand went to her neck. When we were little, right before Sadie went to live with our grandparents, Dad had given us both Egyptian amulets. Mine was an eye of Horus, which is a popular protection symbol in ancient Egypt. In fact, my dad says the modern pharmacist symbol, Rx, is a simplified version of the eye of Horus because medicine is supposed to protect you. Anyway, I always wore my amulet under my shirt, but I figure Sadie would have lost hers or thrown it away. To my surprise, she nodded. Of course I have it, Dad. But don't change the subject. Grant's always going on about how you caused Mum's death. That's not true, is it? We waited. For once, Sadie and I wanted exactly the same thing. The truth. The night your mother died... My father started here at the needle. A sudden flash illuminated the embankment. I turned, half blind, and just for a moment, I glimpsed two figures. A tall, pale man with a forked beard, wearing a cream-colored robe, and a coppery-skinned girl in dark blue robes and a headscarf. The kind of clothes I'd seen hundreds of times in Egypt. They were just standing there, side by side, not 20 feet away, watching us. Then the light faded. The figures melted into a fuzzy afterimage. When my eyes readjusted to the darkness, they were gone. Um, Sadie said nervously. Did you just see that? 
Get in the cab, my dad said, pushing us towards the curb. We're out of time. From that point on, dad clammed up. This isn't the place to talk, he said, glancing behind us. He'd promised the cabbie an extra ten pounds if he got us to the museum in under five minutes, and the cabbie was doing his best. Dad, I tried, those people at the river. And the other bloke, Amos, Sadie said. Are they Egyptian police or something? Look, both of you, Dad said. I'm going to need your help tonight. I know it's hard, but you have to be patient. I'll explain everything, I promise, after we get to the museum. I'm going to make everything right again. What do you mean? Sadie insisted. Make what right? Dad's expression was more than sad. It was almost guilty. With a chill, I thought about what Sadie had said, about our grandparents blaming him for Mom's death. That couldn't be what he was talking about, could it? The cabbie swerved onto Great Russell Street and screeched to a halt in front of the museum's main gates. Just follow my lead, Dad told us. When we meet the curator, act normal. I was thinking that Sadie never acted normal, but I decided not to say anything. We climbed out of the cab. I got our luggage while Dad paid the driver with a big wad of cash. Then he did something strange. He threw a handful of small objects into the back seat. They looked like stones, but it was too dark for me to be sure. Keep driving, he told the cabbie. Take us to Chelsea. That made no sense, since we were already out of the cab, but the driver sped off. I glanced at Dad, then back at the cab, and before it turned the corner and disappeared into the dark, I caught a weird glimpse of three passengers in the back seat, a man and two kids. I blinked. There was no way the cab could have picked up another fare so fast. Dad? London cabs don't stay empty very long, he said matter-of-factly. Come along, kids. We marched off through the wrought iron gates. For a second, Sadie and I hesitated. Carter, what is going on? I shook my head. I'm not sure I want to know. Well, stay out here in the cold if you want, but I'm not leaving without an explanation. She turned and marched after our dad. Looking back on it, I should have run. I should have dragged Sadie out of there and gotten as far away as possible. Instead, I followed her through the gates. Chapter 2. An Explosion for Christmas I'd been to the British Museum before. In fact, I've been to more museums than I'd like to admit. Makes me sound like a total geek. That's Sadie in the background yelling that I am a total geek. Thanks, sis. Anyway, the museum was closed and completely dark, but the curator and two security guards were waiting for us on the front steps. Mr. Kane! The curator was a greasy little dude in a cheap suit. I'd see mummies with more hair and teeth. He shook my dad's hand like he was meeting a rock star. Your last paper on Emotep. Brilliant. I don't know how you translated those spells. Emo who? Sadie muttered to me. Emotep, I said. High priest, architect. Some say he was a ma magician. Designed the first step pyramid. You know. Don't know, Sadie said. 
Don't care, but thanks. Dad expressed his gratitude to the curator for hosting us on a holiday. Then he put his hand on my shoulder. Dr. Martin, I'd like you to meet Carter and Sadie. Ah, your son, obviously, and... The curator looked hesitantly at Sadie. And this young lady? My daughter, Dad said. Dr. Martin's stare went temporarily blank. Doesn't matter how open-minded or polite people think they are, there's always that moment of confusion that flashes, flashes across their faces when they realize Sadie is a part of our family. I hate it. But over the years, I've come to accept it. The curator regained a smile. Yes, yes, of course. Right this way, Dr. Kane. We're very honored. The security guards locked the doors behind us. They took our luggage. Then one of them reached for Dad's work bag. Ah, no, Dad said with a tight smile. I'll keep this one. The guards stayed in the foyer as we followed the curator into the great court. It was ominous at night. Dim light from the glass-domed ceiling cast cross-hatched shadows across the walls like a giant spider web. Our footsteps clicked on the white marble floor. So, Dad said, the stone. Yes, the curator said, though I can't imagine what new information you could glean from it. It's been studied to death. Our most famous artifact, of course. Of course, Dad said, but you may be surprised. What's he on about now? Sadie whispered to me. I didn't answer. I had a sneaking suspicion what stone they were talking about, but I couldn't figure out why Dad would drag us out to see it on Christmas Eve. I wondered what he'd been about to tell us at Cleopatra's Needle. Something about our mother and the night she died. Why did he keep glancing around as if he expected those strange people we'd seen at the Needle to pop up again? We were locked in a museum surrounded by guards and high-tech security. Nobody could bother us in here, I hoped. We turned left into the Egyptian wing. The walls were lined with massive statues of the pharaohs and gods, but my dad bypassed them all and went straight for the main attraction in the middle of the room. Beautiful, my dad murmured. And it's not a replica? No, no, the curator promised. We don't always keep the actual stone on display, but for you, this is quite real. We were staring at a slab of dark gray rock about three feet tall and two feet wide. It sat on a pedestal encased in a glass box. The flat surface of the stone was chiseled with three distinct bands of writing. The top part was ancient Egyptian picture writing, hieroglyphics. The middle section, I had to rack my brain to remember what my dad had called it. Demotic? A kind of writing from the period when the Greeks controlled Egypt and a lot of Greek words got mixed into Egyptian. The last lines were in Greek. The Rosetta Stone, I said. Isn't that a computer program? Sadie asked. I wanted to tell her how stupid she was, but the curator cut me off with a nervous laugh. <laughs> Young lady, uh, the Rosetta Stone was the key to deciphering hieroglyphics. It was discovered by Napoleon's army in 1799 and... Oh, right, Sadie said. I remember now. 
I knew she was just saying that to shut him up, but my dad wouldn't let it go. Sadie, he said, until the stone was discovered, regular mortals, uh, I mean, no one had been able to read hieroglyphics for centuries. The written language of Egypt had been completely forgotten. Then an Englishman named Thomas Young proved that the Rosetta Stone's three languages all conveyed the same message. A Frenchman named Champollion took up the work and cracked the code of hieroglyphics. Sadie chewed her gum, unimpressed. What's it say then? Dad shrugged. Nothing important. It's basically a thank you letter from some priest to King Ptolemy V. When it was first carved, the stone was no big deal. But over the centuries, over the centuries it has become a powerful symbol. Perhaps the most important connection between ancient Egypt and the modern world. I was a fool not to realize its potential sooner. He'd lost me, and apparently the curator too. Dr. Kane, he asked, are you quite all right? Dad breathed deeply. <sighs> My apologies, Dr. Martin. I was just thinking aloud. If I could have the glass removed, and if you could bring me the papers I asked for from your archives. Dr. Martin nodded. He pressed a code into a small remote control, and the front of the glass box clicked open. It will take a few minutes to retrieve the notes, Dr. Martin said. For someone else, I would hesitate to grant unguarded access to the stone, as you've requested. I trust you'll be careful. He glanced at us kids like we were troublemakers. We'll be careful, Dad promised. As soon as Dr. Martin's steps receded, Dad turned to us with a frantic look in his eyes. Children, this is very important. You have to stay out of this room. He slipped his work bag off his shoulder and unzipped it just enough to pull out a bike chain and padlock. Follow Dr. Martin. You'll find his office at the end of the great court on the left. There's only one entrance. Once he's inside, wrap this around the door handle and lock it tight. We need to delay him. You want us to lock him in? Sadie asked, suddenly interested. Brilliant. Dad, I said, what's going on? We don't have time for explanations, he said. This will be our only chance. They're coming. Who's coming? Sadie asked. He took Sadie by the shoulders. Sweetheart, I love you, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry for many things, but there's no time now. If this works, I promise I'll make everything better for all of us. Carter, you're my brave man. You have to trust me. Remember, lock up Dr. Martin, then stay out of this room. Chaining the curator's door was easy, but as soon as we'd finished, we looked back the way we'd come and saw blue light streaming from the Egyptian gallery as if our dad had installed a giant glowing aquarium. Sadie locked eyes with me. Honestly, do you have any idea what he's up to? None, I said, but he's been acting strange lately, thinking a lot about mom. He keeps her picture. I didn't want to say more. Fortunately, Sadie nodded like she understood. What's in his work bag? She asked. I don't know. He told me never to look. Sadie raised an eyebrow. And you never did, 
God, that is so like you, Carter. You're hopeless. I wanted to defend myself, but just then a tremor shook the floor. Startled, Sadie grabbed my arm. He told us to stay put. I suppose you're going to follow that order, too. Actually, that order was sounding pretty good to me, but Sadie sprinted down the hall, and after a moment's hesitation, I ran after her. When we reached the entrance of the Egyptian gallery, we stopped dead in our tracks. Our dad stood in front of the Rosetta Stone with his back to us. A blue circle glowed on the floor around him, as if someone had switched on hidden neon tubes in the floor. My dad had thrown off his overcoat. His work bag lay open at his feet, revealing a wooden box about two feet long, painted with Egyptian images. What's he holding? Sadie whispered to me. Is that a boomerang? Sure enough, when Dad raised his hand, he was brandishing a carved white stick. It did look like a boomerang, but instead of throwing the stick, he touched it to the Rosetta Stone. Sadie caught her breath. Dad was writing on the stone. Whatever the boomerang made, whenever the boomerang made contact, glowing blue lines appeared on the granite. Hieroglyphs. It made no sense. How could he write glowing words with a stick? But the image was bright and clear. Ram's horns above a box and an X. Open, Sadie murmured. I stared at her because it sounded like she had just translated the word. But that was impossible. I'd been hanging around Dad for years, and even I could read only a few hieroglyphs. They are seriously hard to learn. Dad raised his arm. He chanted, Wo sir aye. And two more hieroglyphic symbols burned blue against the surface of the Rosetta Stone. As stunned as I was, I recognized the first symbol. It was the name of the Egyptian god of the dead. Wo sir, I whispered. I'd never heard it pronounced that way, but I knew what it meant. Osiris. Osiris, come. Sadie said as if in a trance. Then her eyes widened. No, she shouted. Dad, no! Our father turned in surprise. He started to say, children, but it was too late. The ground rumbled. The blue light turned to searing white and the Rosetta Stone exploded. When I regained consciousness, the first thing I heard was laughter. Horrible, gleeful laughter mixed with the blare of the museum's security alarms. I felt like I'd just been run over by a tractor. I sat up, dazed, and spit a piece of the Rosetta Stone out of my mouth. The gallery was in ruins. Waves of fire rippled in pools along the floor. Giant statues had toppled. Sarcophagi had been knocked off their pedestals. Pieces of the Rosetta Stone had exploded outward with such force that they'd embedded themselves in the columns, the walls, the other exhibits. Sadie was passed out next to me, but she looked unharmed. I shook her shoulder and she grunted. Ugh. In front of us, where the Rosetta Stone had been, stood a smoking, sheared-off pedestal. The floor was blackened in a starburst pattern, except for the glowing blue circle around our father. He was facing our direction, but he didn't seem to be looking at us. 
A bloody cut ran across his scalp. He gripped the boomerang tightly. I didn't understand what I was looking at. Then the horrible laughter echoed around the room again, and I realized it was coming from right in front of me. Something stood between our father and us. At first, I could barely make it out, just a flicker of heat. But as I concentrated, it took on a vague form, the fiery outline of a man. He was taller than Dad, and his laugh cut through me like a chainsaw. Well done, he said to my father. Very well done, Julius. You were not summoned. My father's voice trembled. He held up the boomerang, but the fiery man flicked one finger, and the stick flew from Dad's hand, shattering against the wall. I am never summoned, Julius, the man purred. But when you open a door, you must be prepared for guests to walk through. Back to the duot, my father roared. I have the power of the great king. Ooh, scary, the fiery man said with amusement. And even if you knew how to use that power, which you do not, he was never my match. I am the strongest. Now you will share his fate. I couldn't make sense of anything, but I knew that I had to help my dad. I tried to pick up the nearest chunk of stone, but I was so terrified my fingers felt frozen and numb. My hands were useless. My dad shot me a silent look of warning. Get out. I realized he was intentionally keeping the fiery man's back to us, hoping Sadie and I would escape unnoticed. Sadie was still groggy. I managed to drag her behind a column into the shadows. When she started to protest, I clamped my hand over her mouth. That woke her up. She saw what was happening and stopped fighting. Alarms blared, fire circled around the doorway of the gallery. The guards had to be on their way, but I wasn't sure if that was a good thing for us. Dad crouched to the floor, keeping his eyes on his enemy and opened his painted wooden box. He brought out a small rod like a ruler. He muttered something under his breath, and the rod elongated into a long, into a wooden staff as tall as he was. Sadie made a squeaking sound. I couldn't believe my eyes either, but things only got weirder. Dad threw his staff at the fiery man's feet, and it changed into an enormous serpent, ten feet long and as big around as I was with coppery scales and glowing red eyes. It lunged at the fiery man, who effortlessly grabbed the serpent by its neck. The man's hand burst into white-hot flames, and the snake burned to ashes. An old trick, Julius, the fiery man chided. My dad glanced at us, silently urging us again to run. Part of me refused to believe any of this was real. Maybe I was unconscious, having a nightmare. Next to me, Sadie picked up a chunk of stone. How many? My dad asked quickly, trying to keep the fiery man's attention. How many did I release? Why, all five, the man said, as if he were explaining something to a child. You should know we're a package deal, Julius. Some, uh, soon I'll release even more, and they'll be very grateful. 
I shall be named king again. The demon days, my father said. They'll stop you before it's too late. The fiery man laughed. You think the house can stop me? Those old fools can't even stop arguing among themselves. Let the story be told anew, and this time you shall never rise. The fiery man waved his hand. The blue circle at Dad's feet went dark. Dad grabbed for his toolbox, but it skirted across the floor. Goodbye, Osiris, the fiery man said. With another flick of his hand, he conjured a glowing coffin around my dad. At first it was transparent, but as our father struggled and pounded on its sides, the coffin became more and more solid. A golden Egyptian sarcophagus inlaid with jewels. My dad caught my eyes one last time and mouthed the word, Run! Before the coffin sank into the floor as if the ground had turned to water. Dad! I screamed. Sadie threw her stone, but it sailed harmlessly through the fiery man's head. He turned, and for one terrible moment, his face appeared in the flames. What I saw made no sense. It was as if someone had superimposed two different faces on top of each other. One almost human, with pale skin, cruel, angular features, and glowing red eyes. The other like an animal, with dark fur and sharp fangs. Worse than a dog or a wolf or a lion. Some animal I'd never seen before. Those red eyes stared at me, and I knew I was going to die. Behind me, heavy footsteps echoed on the marble floor of the great court. Voices were barking orders. The security guards, maybe the police. But they'd never get here in time. The fiery man lunged at us. A few inches from my face, something shoved him back. The air sparked with electricity. The amulet around my neck grew uncomfortably hot. The fiery man hissed regarding me more carefully. So, it's you. The building shook again. At the opposite end of the room, part of the wall exploded into a brilliant flash of light. Two people stepped through the gap. The man and the girl we'd seen at the needle, their robes swirling around them. Both of them held staffs. The fiery man snarled. He looked at me one last time and said, Soon, boy. Then the entire room erupted in flames. A blast of heat sucked all the air out of my lungs and I crumpled to the floor. The last thing I remember, the man with the forked beard and the girl in blue were standing over me. I heard the security guards running and shouting, getting closer. The girl crouched over me and drew a long, curved knife from her belt. We must act quickly, she told the man. Not yet, he said with some reluctance. His thick accent sounded French. We must be sure before they we destroy them. I closed my eyes and drifted into unconsciousness. Chapter 3. Imprisoned with my cat. Give me the bloody mic. Hello, Sadie here, my brother's rubbish storyteller. Sorry about that. But now you've got me, so all is well. 
let's see. The explosion. Rosetta Stone in a billion pieces. Fiery evil bloke. Dead box in a coffin. Creepy Frenchman and Arab girl with a knife. Us passing out. Right. So when I woke up, the police were rushing about, as you might expect. They separated me from my brother. I didn't really mind that part. He's a pain anyway. But they locked me in the curator's office for ages. And yes, they used our bicycle chain to do it. I was shattered, of course. I'd just been knocked out by a fiery whatever it was. I'd watched my dad get packed into a sarcophagus and shot through the floor. I tried to tell the police about all that, but did they care? No. Worst of all, I had a lingering chill, as if someone was pushing ice-cold needles in the back of my neck. It had started when I looked at those blue glowing words Dad had drawn on the Rosetta Stone, and I knew what they meant. A family disease, perhaps? Can knowledge of boring Egyptian stuff be hereditary? With my luck. Long after my gum had gone stale, a policewoman finally retrieved me from the curator's office. She asked me no questions. She just trundled me into a police car and took me home. Even then, I wasn't allowed to explain to Gran and Gramps. The policewoman just tossed me into my room and waited. And I waited. I don't like waiting. I paced the floor. My room was nothing posh, just an attic space with a window and a bed and a desk. There wasn't much to do. Muffin sniffed my legs and her tail puffed up like a bottle brush. I suppose she doesn't fancy the smell of museums. She hissed and disappeared under the bed. Thanks a lot, I muttered. I opened the door, but the policewoman was standing guard. The inspector will be with you in a moment, she told me. Please stay inside. I could see downstairs, just a glimpse of Gramps pacing the room, wringing his hands, while Carter and a police inspector talked on the sofa. I couldn't make out what they were saying. Can I just use the loo? I asked the nice officer. No. She closed the door in my face. As if I might rig an explosion in the toilet. Honestly. I dug out my iPad and scrolled through my playlist. Nothing struck me. I threw it on my bed in disgust. When I'm too distracted for music, that is a very sad thing. I wondered why Carter got to talk to the police first. It wasn't fair. I fiddled with the necklace Dad had given me. I'd never been sure what the symbol meant. Carter's was obviously an eye, but mine looked a bit like an angel, or perhaps a killer alien robot. Why on earth had Dad asked if I still had it? Of course I still had it. It was the only gift he'd ever given me. Well, apart from Muffin, with the cat's attitude, I'm not sure I would call her a proper gift. Dad had practically abandoned me at age six, after all. The necklace was my one link to him. On good days, I would stare at it and remember him fondly. On bad days, which were much more frequent, I would fling it across the room and stomp on it and curse him for not being around, which I found quite therapeutic. But in the end, I always put it back on. At any rate, during the weirdness at the museum, and I'm not making this up, the necklace got hotter. I nearly took it off, but I couldn't help wondering if it was truly protecting me somehow. I'll make things right, Dad had said, 
with that guilty look he often gives me. Well, colossal fail, Dad. What had he been thinking? I wanted to believe it had been all a bad dream. The glowing hieroglyphs, the snake staff, the coffin. Things like that simply don't happen. But I knew better. I couldn't dream anything as horrifying as the fireman's face when he turned on us. Soon, boy, he told Carter, as if he intended to track us down. Just the idea made my hands tremble. I also couldn't help wondering about our stop at Cleopatra's Needle. Our dad had insisted on seeing it, as if we were stealing his courage. As if what he did at the British Museum had something to do with my mum. My eyes wandered across my room and fixed on my desk. No, I thought, not going to do it. But I walked over and opened the drawer. I shoved aside a few old mags, my stash of sweets, a stack of maths homework I'd forgotten to hand in, and a few pictures of me and my mates, Liz and Emma, trying on ridiculous hats in Camden Market. And there at the bottom of it all was the picture of Mum. Gran and Gramps had loads of pictures. They kept a shrine to Ruby in the hall cupboard. Mum's childhood artwork, her O-level results, her graduation picture from university, her favourite jewellery. It's quite mental. I was determined not to be like them, living in the past. I barely remembered Mum, after all, and nothing could change the fact she was dead. But I did keep the one picture. It was of Mum and me at our house in Los Angeles, just after I was born. She stood out on the balcony, the Pacific Ocean behind her, holding a wrinkled, pudgy lump of baby that would someday grow up to be yours truly. Baby me was not much to look at, but Mom was gorgeous, even in shorts and a tattered t-shirt. Her eyes were deep blue, her blonde hair was clipped back, her skin was perfect. Quite depressing compared to mine. People always say I look like her but I couldn't even get the spot off my chin, much less look so mature and beautiful. Stop smirking, Carter. The photo fascinated me because I hardly remembered our lives together at all, but the main reason I'd kept the photo was because of the symbol on Mum's t-shirt. One of those life symbols. Uh, an unk. My dead mother wearing the symbol for life. Nothing could have been sadder. But she smiled at the camera as if she knew a secret, as if my dad and she were sharing a private joke. Something tugged at the back of my mind. That stocky man in the trench coat who'd been arguing with dad across the street. He'd said something about per unk. Had he meant unk as in the symbol for life? And if so, what was a per? I suppose he didn't mean pear as in the fruit. I had an eerie feeling that I saw the words per unk written in hieroglyphs. I would knew what it meant. I put down the picture of mum. I picked up a pencil and turned over one of my old homework papers. I wondered what would happen if I tried to draw the words per unk. Would the right design just occur to me? As I touched pencil to paper, my bedroom door opened. Miss Kane? I whirled and dropped the pencil. A police inspector stood frowning in my doorway. What are you doing? 
Maths, I said. My ceiling was quite low, so the inspector had to stoop to come in. He wore a lint-coloured suit that matched his grey hair and his ashen face. Now then, Sadie, I'm Chief Inspector Williams. Let's have a chat, shall we? Sit down. I didn't sit, and neither did he, which must have annoyed him. It's hard to look in charge when you're hunched over like Quasimodo. Tell me everything, please, he said, from the time your father came round to get you. I already told the police at the museum. Again, if you don't mind. So I told them everything. Why not? His left eyebrow crept higher and higher as I told them the strange bits about the glowing letters and serpent staff. Well, Sadie, Inspector Williams said, you've got quite an imagination. I'm not lying, Inspector, and I think your eyebrow was trying to escape. He tried to look at his own eyebrows, then scowled. Now, Sadie... I'm sure this is very hard for you. I understand you want to protect your father's reputation, but he's gone now. You mean through the floor in a coffin? I insisted. He's not dead. Inspector Williams spread his hands. Sadie, I'm very sorry, but we must find out where he, why he did this act of... Well, act of what? He cleared his throat uncomfortably. Your father destroyed priceless artifacts and apparently killed himself in the process. We'd very much like to know why. I stared at him. Are you saying my father's a terrorist? Are you mad? We've made calls to some of your father's associates. I understand his behavior has become erratic since your mother's death. He'd become more withdrawn and obsessive in his studies, spending more and more time in Egypt... He's a bloody Egyptologist. You should be looking for him, not asking stupid questions. Sadie, he said, and I could hear in his voice that he was resisting the urge to strangle me. Strangely, I get this a lot from adults. There are extremist groups in Egypt that object to Egyptian artifacts being kept in other countries' museums. This People might have approached your father. Perhaps in his state, your father became an easy target for them. If you've heard him mention any names, I stormed past him to the window. I was so angry I could hardly think. I refused to believe Dad was dead. No, no, no. And a terrorist? Please. Why did adults have to be so thick? They always say, tell the truth. And when you do, they don't believe you. What's the point? I stared down the dark street. Suddenly, that cold, tingly feeling got worse than ever. I focused on the dead tree where I'd met Dad earlier. Standing there now in the dim light of a street lamp looking up at me was the pudgy bloke in the black trench coat and round glasses and the fedora. The man Dad had called Amos. I suppose I should have felt threatened by an odd man staring up at me in the dark of night. But his expression was full of concern, and he looked so familiar. It was driving me mad that I couldn't remember why. Behind me, the inspector cleared his throat. <clears> throat> Sadie, no one blames you for the attack on the museum. We understand you were dragged into this against your will. I turned from the window. Against my will? I chained the curator in his office. The inspector's eyebrows started to creep up again. 
Be that as it may, surely you didn't understand what your father meant to do. Possibly your brother was involved? I snorted. Carter, please. So you're determined to protect him as well. You consider him a proper brother, do you? I couldn't believe it. I wanted to smack his face. What's that supposed to mean? Because he doesn't look like me. The inspector blinked. I only meant... I know what you meant. Of course he's my brother. Inspector Williams held up his hands apologetically, but I was still seething. As much as Carter annoyed me, I hated it when people assumed we weren't related or looked at my father askance when he said the three of us were a family, like we'd done something wrong. Stupid Dr. Martin at the museum. Inspector Williams... It happened every time Dad and Carter and I were together. Every bloody time. I'm sorry, Sadie, the inspector said. I only want to make sure we separate the innocent from the guilty. It would go much easier for everyone if you cooperate. Any information, anything your father said, people he might have mentioned. Amos, I blurted out just to see his reaction. He met a man named Amos. Inspector Williams sighed. Sadie, he couldn't have done. Surely you know that. We spoke with Amos not only an hour ago. On the phone from his home in New York. He isn't in New York, I insisted. He's right. Glanced out the window and Amos was gone. Bloody typical. That's not possible, I said. Exactly, the inspector said. But he was here, I exclaimed. Who is he? One of Dad's colleagues. How did you know to call him? Really, Sadie, this acting must stop. Acting? The inspector studied me for a moment, then he set his jaw as if he'd made a decision. We've already had the truth from Carter. I didn't want to upset you, but he told us everything. He understands there's no point protecting your father now. You might as well help us and there will be no charges against you. You shouldn't lie to children, I yelled, hoping my voice carried all the way downstairs. Carter would never say a word against Dad, and neither will I. The inspector didn't even have the decency to look embarrassed. He crossed his arms. I'm sorry you feel this way, Sadie. I'm afraid it's time we went downstairs to discuss consequences with your grandparents. Chapter 4. Kidnapped by a Not-So-Stranger I just love family meetings. Very cozy. And with a Christmas garland round the fireplace and a nice pot of tea and a detective from Scotland Yard ready to arrest you. Kind of slumped on the sofa, cradling Dad's work bag. I wondered why the police had let him keep it. It should have been evidence or something, but the inspector didn't seem to notice it at all. Carter looked awful. I mean, even worse than usual. Honestly, the boy had never been in proper school, and he dressed like a junior professor with his khaki trousers and a button-down shirt and loafers. He's not bad-looking, I suppose. He's reasonably tall and fit, and his hair isn't hopeless. He's got Dad's eyes, and my mates Liz and Emma have even told me from his picture that he's hot. Which I must take with a grain of salt, because A, he's my brother... And B, my mates are a bit crazed. 
When it came to clothes, Carter wouldn't have known hot if it bit him on the bum. Oh, don't look at me like that, Carter. You know it's true. At any rate, I shouldn't have been so hard on him. He was taking Dad's disappearance even worse than I was. Ran and Grap sat on either side of him, looking quite nervous. The pot of tea and a plate of biscuits sat on the table, but no one was having any. Chief Inspector Williams offered me, ordered me, into the only free chair. Then he paced in front of the fireplace, importantly. Two more police stood by the front door. The woman from earlier and a big bloke who kept eyeing the biscuits. Mr. and Mrs. Faust, Inspector Williams said. I'm afraid we have two uncooperative children. Grand fidgeted with a trim of a dress. It's hard to believe she's related to Mum. Gran is frail and colourless, like a stick person, really, while Mum and the photos always look so happy and full of life. They're just children, she managed. Surely you can't blame them. Bah, Gramps said. This is ridiculous, Inspector. They aren't responsible. Gramps is a former rugby player. He has beefy arms, a belly much too big for his shirt, and I sunk deep in his face as if someone had punched them. Well... Actually, Dad had punched them years ago, but that's another story. Grabs is quite scary-looking. Usually people got out of his way, but Inspector Williams didn't seem impressed. Mr. Faust, he said, what do you imagine the morning headlines will read? British Museum attacked, Rosetta Stone destroyed, your son-in-law, former son-in-law, Grabs corrected was most likely vaporised in the explosion, or he ran off, in which case. He didn't run off, I shouted. We need to know where he is, the inspector continued, and the only witnesses, your grandchildren, refused to tell me the truth. We did tell the truth, Carter said. Dad isn't dead. He sank through the floor. Inspector Williams glanced at Gramps, as if to say, there, you see... Then he turned to Carter. Young man, your father has committed a criminal act. He's left you behind to deal with the consequences. That's not true, I snapped, my voice trembling with rage. I couldn't believe Dad would intentionally leave us at the mercy of police, of course. But the idea of him abandoning me, well, as I might have mentioned, that's a bit of a sore point. Dear, please, Grant told me, the inspector is only doing his job. Badly. I said. Let's all have some tea, Grant suggested. No, Carter and I yelled at once, which made me feel bad for Gran, as she practically wilted into the sofa. We can charge you, Inspector Warren, turning on me. We can and we will. He froze. Then he blinked several times as if he'd forgotten what he was doing. Gramps frowned. Uh, Inspector? Yes, Chief Inspector Williams murmured dreamily. He reached in his pocket and took out a little blue booklet, an American passport. He threw it in Carter's lap. You're being deported, the inspector announced. You're to leave the country within 24 hours. If we need to question you further, you'll be contacted through the FBI. Carter's mouth fell open. He looked at me, and I knew I wasn't imagining how odd this was. The inspector had completely changed direction. He'd been about to arrest us. I was sure of it. And then, out of the blue, he was deporting Carter? 
Even the other police officers look confused. Sir, the policewoman asked, are you sure? Quite, Lindley. The two of you may go. The cops hesitated until Williams made a shooing motion with his hand. Then they left, closing the door behind them. Hold on, Carter said. My father's disappeared and you want me to leave the country? Your father is either dead or a fugitive, son, the inspector said. Deportation is the kindest option. It's already been arranged. With whom? Gramps demanded. Who authorized this? With the inspector got that funny blank look again. With the proper authorities, believe me, it's better than prison. Carter looked too devastated to speak. But before I could feel sorry for him, Inspector Williams turned on me. You too, miss. He might as well have hit me with a sledgehammer. You're deporting me? I asked. I live here. You're an American citizen, and under the circumstances, it's best for you to return home. I just stared at him. I couldn't remember any home except this flat. My mates at school, my room, everything I knew was here. Where am I supposed to go? Inspector, Gran said, her voice trembling. This isn't fair. I can't believe... I'll give you time to say goodbye, the inspector interrupted. Then he frowned as if baffled by his own actions. I I must be going. This made no sense, and the inspector seemed to realize it, but he walked to the front door anyway. When he opened it, I almost jumped out of my chair because the man in black, Amos, was standing there. He'd lost his trench coat and hat somewhere, but was still wearing the same pinstripe suit and round glasses. His braided hair glittered with gold beads. I thought the inspector would say something or express surprise, but he didn't even acknowledge Amos. He walked right past him and into the night. Amos came inside and closed the door. Gran and Gramps stood up. You, Gramps growled, I should have known. If I was younger, I'd beat you to a pulp. Hello, Mr. and Mrs. Faust, Amos said. He looked at Carter and me as if we were problems to be solved. It's time we had a talk. Amos made himself right at home. He flopped onto the sofa and poured himself tea. He munched on a biscuit, which was quite dangerous, because Gran's biscuits are horrid. I thought Gramps's head would explode. His face went bright red. He came up behind Amos and raised his hand as if he were about to smack him, but Amos kept munching his biscuit. Please sit down, he told us. And we all sat. It was the strangest thing, as if we'd been waiting for his order. Even Gramps dropped his hand and moved round the sofa. He sat next to Amos with a disgusted sigh. Amos sipped his tea and regarded me with some displeasure. That wasn't fair, I thought. I didn't look that bad, considering what we'd been through. Then he looked at Carter and grunted. Terrible timing, he muttered. But there's no other way. They'll have to come with me. Excuse me? I said, I'm not going anywhere with some strange man with biscuit on his face. He did, in fact, have biscuit crumbs on his face, but he apparently didn't care, as he didn't bother to check. I'm no stranger, Sadie, he said. Don't you remember? 
It was creepy hearing him talk to me in such a familiar way. I felt I should know him. I looked at Carter, but he seemed just as mystified as I was. No, Amos, Gran said, trembling. You can't take Sadie. We had an agreement. Julius broke that agreement tonight, Amos said. You know we can't care for Sadie anymore. Not after what's happened. Their only chance is to come with me. Why should we come anywhere with you? Carter asked. You must got into a fight with Dad. I must looked at the workout, at the work bag in Carter's lap. I see you kept your father's bag. That's good. You'll need it. As for getting into fights, Julius and I did that quite a lot. If you didn't notice, Carter, I was trying to stop him from doing something rash. If he'd listened to me, he wouldn't be in this situation. I had no idea what he was on about, but Gramps apparently understood. You and your superstitions, he said. I told you we want none of it. Amos pointed to the back patio. Through the glass doors, you could see the light shining on the Thames. It was quite a nice view at night, when you couldn't notice how run down some of the buildings were. Superstition, is it? Amos asked. And yet you found a place to live on the east bank of the river. Gramps turned even redder. That was Ruby's idea. Thought it would protect us. She was wrong about many things, wasn't she? She trusted Julius and you, for one. I must look unfazed. He smelled interesting, like old-timey spices, copaline amber, like the incense shops in Cabinet Garden. He finished his tea and looked straight at Gran. Mrs. Faust, you know what's begun. The police are the least of your worries. Gran swallowed. You you changed that inspector's mind. You made him deport Sadie. It was that or see the children arrested, Amos said. Hang on, I said. You changed Inspector Williams' mind. How? Amos shrugged. It's not permanent. In fact, we should get to New York in the next hour or so before Inspector Williams begins to wonder why he let you go. Carter laughed incredulously. You can't get to New York from London in an hour. Not even the fastest plane. No. Amos agreed, not a plane. He turned back to Gran as if everything had been settled. Mrs. Faust, Carter and Sadie have only one safe option. You know that. They'll come to the mansion in Brooklyn. I can protect them there. You've got a mansion, Carter said, in Brooklyn. Amos gave him an amused smile. The family mansion, you'll be safe there. But our dad is beyond your help for now, Amos said sadly. I'm sorry, Carter. I'll explain later, but Julius would want you to be safe. For that, we must move quickly. I'm afraid I'm all you've got. That was a bit, a bit harsh, I thought. Carter glanced at Gran and Gramps. Then he nodded glumly. He knew that they didn't want him around. He'd always reminded him of our dad. And yes, it was a stupid reason not to take in your grandson. But there it was. Well, Carter can do what he wants, I said. But I live here. And I'm not going off with some stranger, am I? 
I looked at Grant for support, but she was staring at the lace doilies on the table as if it was suddenly quite interesting. Gramps, surely. But he wouldn't meet my eyes either. He turned to Amos. You can get them out of the country. Hang on, I protested. Amos stood and wiped the crumbs off his jacket. He walked to the patio doors and stared out at the river. The police will be back soon. Tell them anything you like. They won't find us. You're going to kidnap us? I asked, stunned. I looked at Carter. Do you believe this? Carter shouldered the work bag. Then he stood like he was ready to go. Possibly he just wanted to be out of ground and gramps flat. How do you plan to get to New York in an hour? He asked Amos. You said not a plane. No, Amos agreed. He put his finger to the window and tried something in the condensation. Another bloody hieroglyph. A boat, I said, then realized I translated aloud, which I wasn't supposed to be able to do. Amos peered at me over the top of his round glasses. How did you... I mean, that last bit looks like a boat, I blurted out. But that can't be what you mean. That's ridiculous. Look, Carter cried. I pressed in next to him at the patio doors. Down at the quayside, a boat was docked. But not a regular boat, mind you. It was an Egyptian reed boat with two torches burning in the front and a big rudder in the back. A figure in a black trench coat and hat, possibly Amos's, stood at the tiller. I'll admit, for once, I was at a loss for words. We're going in that, Carter said, to Brooklyn. We'd better get started, Amos said. I rode back to my grandmother. Grand, please. She brushed a tear from her cheek. It's for the best, my dear. You should take Muffin. Ah, yes, Amos said. We can't forget the cat. He turned toward the stairs. As if on cue, Muffin raced down in a leopard-spotted streak and leaped into my arms. She never does that. Who are you? I asked Amos. It was clear I was running out of options, but I at least wanted answers. We can't just go off with some stranger. I'm not a stranger, Amos smiled at me. I'm family. And suddenly I remembered his face smiling down at me, saying, Happy birthday, Sadie. A memory so distant I'd almost forgotten. Uncle Amos? I asked hazily. That's right, Sadie, he said. I'm Julius's brother. Now come along, we have a long way to go. Chapter 5. We Meet the Monkey It's Carter again. Sorry. We had to turn off the tape for a while because we were being followed by, well, we'll get to that later. Sadie was telling you how we left London, right? So anyway, we followed Amos down to the weird boat docked at the quayside. I cradled Dad's work bag under my arm. I still couldn't believe he was gone. I felt guilty about leaving London without him. But I believed Amos about one thing. Right now, Dad was beyond our help. I didn't trust Amos, but I figured if I wanted to find out what happened to Dad, I was going to have to go along with him. 
He was the only one who seemed to know anything. Amos stepped aboard the reed boat. Sadie jumped right on, but I hesitated. I'd seen boats like this on the Nile before, and they never seemed very sturdy. It was basically woven together from coils of plant fiber, like a giant floating rug. I figured the torches at the front couldn't be a good idea, but but because if we didn't sink, we'd burn. At the back, the tiller was manned by a little guy wearing Amos's black trench coat and hat. The hat was shoved down on his head so I couldn't see his face. His hands and feet were lost in the folds of the coat. How does this thing move? I asked Amos. You've got no sail. Trust me. Amos offered me a hand. The night was cold, but when I stepped on board, I suddenly felt warmer, as if the torchlight was casting a protective glow over us. In the middle of a boat of the boat was a hut made from woven mats. From Sadie's arms, Muffin sniffed at it and growled. Take a seat inside, Amos suggested. The trip might be a little rough. I'll stand, thanks. Sadie nodded at the little guy in back. Who's your driver? Amos acted as if he hadn't heard the question. Hang on, everyone. He nodded to the steersman and the boat lurched forward. The feeling was hard to describe. You know that tingle in the pit of your stomach when you're on a roller coaster and it goes into free fall? It was kind of like that, except we weren't falling and the feeling didn't go away. The boat moved with astounding speed. The lights of the city blurred, then were swallowed in a thick fog. Strange sounds echoed in the dark, slithering and hissing, distant screams, voices whispering in languages I didn't understand. The tingling turned to nausea. The sounds got louder until I was about to scream myself. Then suddenly, the boat slowed. The noises stopped and the fog dissipated. City lights came back, brighter than before. Above us loomed a bridge, much taller than any bridge in London. My stomach did a slow roll. To the left, I saw a familiar skyline. The Chrysler Building, the Empire State Building. Possible, I said. That's New York. Sadie looked as green as I felt. She was still cradling Muffin, whose eyes were closed. The cat seemed to be purring. It can't be, Sadie said. We only traveled a few minutes. And yet, here we were, sailing up the East River, right under the Williamsburg Bridge. We glided to a stop next to a small dock on the Brooklyn side of the river. In front of us was an industrial yard filled with piles of scrap metal and old construction equipment. In the center of it all, right at the water's edge, rose a huge factory warehouse, heavily painted with graffiti. The windows boarded up. That is not a mansion, Sadie said. Her powers of perception are really amazing. Look again, Amos pointed to the top of the building. How, how did you... My voice failed me. I wasn't sure why I hadn't seen it before. But now it was obvious. A five-story mansion perched on the roof of the warehouse, like a another layer of a cake. 
You couldn't build a mansion up there. Long story, Amos said, but we needed a private location. And is this the East Shore? Sadie asked. You said something about that in London, my grandparents living on the East Shore. Amos smiled. Yes. Very good, Sadie. In ancient times, the east bank of the Nile was always the side of the living. The side where the sun rises. The dead were buried west of the river. It was considered bad luck, even dangerous to live there. The tradition is still strong among our people. Our people, I asked, but Sadie muscled in with another question. So you can't live in Manhattan, she asked. Amos's brow furrowed as he looked across at the Empire State Building. Manhattan has other problems, other gods. It's best we stay separate. Other what? Sadie demanded. Nothing. Amos walked past us to the steersman. He plucked off the man's hat and coat, and there was no one underneath. The steersman simply wasn't there. Amos put on his fedora, folded his coat over his arm, then waved towards the metal staircase that wound all the way up the side of the warehouse to the mansion on the roof. All ashore, he said, and welcome to the 21st gnome. Gnome, I asked as we followed him upstairs. Like the little runty guys? Heavens no, Amos said. I hate gnomes. They smell horrible. But you said gnome. N-O-M-E, is in a district, a region. The term is from ancient times when Egypt was divided into 42 provinces. Today, the system is a little different. We've gone global. The world is divided into 360 gnomes. Egypt, of course, is the first. Greater New York is the 21st. Sadie glanced at me and twirled her finger around her temple. No, Sadie. Amos said without looking back. I'm not crazy. There's just much you need to learn. We reached the top of the stairs. Looking up at the mansion, it was hard to understand what I was seeing. The house was at least 50 feet tall, built of enormous limestone blocks and steel-framed windows. There were hieroglyphs engraved, engraved around the windows, and the walls were lit up so the place looked like a cross between a modern museum in an ancient temple. But the weirdest thing was that if I glanced away, the whole building seemed to disappear. I tried it several times just to be sure. If I looked for the mansion from the corner of my eye, it wasn't there. I had to force my eyes to refocus on it. And even then, it took a lot of willpower. Amos stopped before the entrance, which was the size of a garage door. A dark, heavy square of timber with no visible handle or lock. Carter, after you. Um, how do I... How do you think? Great, another mystery. I was about to suggest we ram Amos's head against it and see if that worked. Then I looked at the door again, and I had the strangest feeling. I stretched out my arm, slowly, without touching the door... I raised my hand, and the door followed my movement, sliding upward until it disappeared into the ceiling. Sadie looked stunned. 
How? I don't know. I admitted, a little embarrassed. Motion sensor, maybe? Interesting. Amos sounded a little troubled. Not the way I would have done it, but very good. Remarkably good. Thanks, I think. Sadie tried to go inside first, but as soon as she stepped on the threshold, Muffin wailed and almost clawed her way out of Sadie's arm. Sadie stumbled back. What's that about, cat? Oh, of course, Amos said. My apologies. He put his hand on the cat's head and said very formally, You may enter. The cat needs permission, I asked. Special circumstances, Amos said, which wasn't much of an explanation, but he walked inside without saying another word. We followed, and this time Muffin stayed quiet. Oh my God. Sadie's jaw dropped. She craned her neck to look at the ceiling, and I thought the gum might fall out of her mouth. Yes, Amos said. This is the great room. I could see why he called it that. The cedar beam ceiling was four stories high, held up by carved stone pillars engraved with hieroglyphs. A weird assortment of musical instruments and ancient Egyptian weapons decorated the walls. Three levels of balconies ringed the room, with rows of doors all around looking out of the main area. The fireplace was big enough to park a car in, with a plasma screen TV above the mantel and massive leather sofas on either side. On the floor was a snakeskin rug, except it was 40 feet long and 15 feet wide, bigger than any snake. Outside, through glass walls, I could see the terrace that wrapped around the house. It had a swimming pool, a dining area, and a blazing fire pit. And at the far end of the great room was, set, was a set of double doors marked with the eye of Horus, and chained with half a dozen padlocks. I wondered what could possibly be behind them. But the real showstopper was the statue in the center of the great room. It was 30 feet tall, made of black marble. I could tell it was of an Egyptian god because the figure had a human body and an animal's head like a stork or a crane, with a long neck and a really long beak. The god was dressed in ancient style, in a kilt, sash, and neck collar. He held a scribe's stylus in one hand and an open scroll in the other, as if he had just written the hieroglyphs inscribed there. An ankh, the Egyptian looped cross, with a rectangle traced around its top. That's it, Sadie exclaimed. Per ankh! I stared at her in disbelief. All right, how can you read that? I don't know, she said, but it's obvious, isn't it? The top one is shaped like the floor plan of a house. How did you get that? It's just a box. The thing was, she was right. I recognized the symbol, and it was supposed to be a simplified picture of a house with a doorway. But that wouldn't be obvious to most people, especially people named Sadie. Yet she looked absolutely positive. It's a house, she insisted, and the bottom picture is the Ankh, the symbol for life. Per Ankh, the house of life. Very good, Sadie. Amos looked impressed. 
And this is a statue of the only God still allowed in the house of life, at least normally. Do you recognize him, Carter? Just then it clicked. The bird was an ibis, an Egyptian river bird. Thoth, I said, the god of knowledge. He invented writing. Indeed, Amos said. Why the animal heads? Sadie asked. All those Egyptian gods have animal heads. They look so silly. They don't normally appear that way, Amos said. Not in real life. Real life? I asked. Come on. You sound like you've met them in person. Amos's expression didn't reassure me. He looked as if he were remembering something unpleasant. The gods could appear in many forms, usually fully human or fully animal, but occasionally as a hybrid form like this. They are primal forces, you understand, a sort of bridge between humanity and nature. They are depicted with animal heads to show you that they exist in two different worlds at once. Do you understand? Not even a little, Sadie said. Hmm. Amos didn't sound surprised. Yes, we have much training to do. At any rate, the god before you, Thoth, founded the House of Life, for which this mansion is the regional headquarters. Or at least, it used to be. I'm the only member left in the 21st Gnome, or I was until you two came along. Hang on. I had so many questions I could hardly think where to start. What is the House of Life? Why is Thoth the only god allowed here, and why are you... Carter, I understand how you feel. Amos smiled sympathetically. But these things are better discussed in daylight. You need to get some sleep. And I don't want you to have nightmares. You think I can sleep? Meow. Muffin stretched in Sadie's arms and let loose a huge yawn. Amos clapped his hands. Khufu. I thought he'd sneeze because Khufu is a weird name, but then a little dude about three feet tall with gold fur and a purple shirt came clamoring down the stairs. It took me a second to realize it was a baboon wearing an L.A. Lakers jersey. The baboon did a flip and landed in front of us. He showed off his fangs and made a sound that was a half roar, half belch. His breath smelled like nacho-flavored Doritos. All I could think to say was, The Lakers are my home team! The baboon slapped his head with both hands and belched again. Ah. Oh. Khufu likes you, Amos said. You'll get along famously. Right. Sadie looked dazed. You've got a monkey butler. Why not? Muffin purred in Sadie's arms as if the baboon didn't bother her at all. Ah! Khufu grunted at me. Amos chuckled. He wants to go one-on-one -on -one with you, Carter, to uh, see your game. I shifted from foot to foot. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, maybe tomorrow. But can you... But how can you understand? Carter, I'm afraid you'll have a lot to get used to, Amos said. But if you're going to survive and save your father, you have to get some rest. Sorry, Sadie said. Did you say survive and save our father? Could you expand on that? <laughs> 
Tomorrow, Amos said, you'll begin your orientation in the morning. Khufu, show them to their rooms, please. Ah! ah! The baboon grunted. He turned and waddled up the stairs. Unfortunately, the Lakers jersey didn't completely cover his multicolored rear. We were about to follow when Amos said, Carter, the work bag, please. It's best if I lock it in the library. I hesitated. I'd almost forgotten the bag on my shoulder. But it was all I had left of my father. I didn't even have our luggage because it was still locked up at the British Museum. Honestly, I'd been surprised that the police hadn't taken the work bag, too. But none of them seemed to notice it. You'll get it back, Amos promised, when the time is right. He asked nicely enough, but something in his eyes told me that I really didn't have a choice. I handed over the bag. Amos took it gingerly as if it were full of explosives. See you in the morning. He turned and strode toward the chained-up doors. They unlatched themselves and opened just enough for Amos to slip through without showing us anything on the other side. Then the chains locked again behind him. I looked at Sadie, unsure what to do. Staying by ourselves in the great room with the creepy statue of Thoth didn't seem like much fun, so we followed Khufu up the stairs. Sadie and I got adjoining rooms on the third floor, and I've got to admit, they were way cooler than any place I'd ever stayed before. I had my own kitchenette, fully stocked with my favorite snacks, ginger ale. No, Sadie, it's not an old person soda. Be quiet. Twix and Skittles. It seemed impossible. How did Amos know what I liked? The TV, computer, and stereo system were totally high-tech. The bathroom was stocked with my regular brand of toothpaste, deodorant, everything. The king-size bed was awesome, too, though the pillow was a little strange. Instead of a cloth pillow, it was an ivory headrest like I'd seen in Egyptian tombs. It was decorated with lions and, of course, more hieroglyphs. The room even had a deck that looked out on New York Harbor, with views of Manhattan and the Statue of Liberty in the distance but the sliding glass doors were locked shut somehow. That was my first indication that something was wrong. I turned to look for Khufu, but he was gone. The door to my room was shut. I tried to open it, but it was locked. A muffled voice came from the next room. Carter? Sadie. I tried the door to her adjoining room, but it was locked too. We're prisoners, she said. Do you think Amos... I mean, can we trust him? After all I'd seen today, I didn't trust anything. But I could hear the fear in Sadie's voice. It triggered an unfamiliar feeling in me, like I needed to reassure her. The idea seemed ridiculous. Sadie had always been so much braver than me, doing what she wanted, never caring about the consequences. I was the one who got scared, but right now... I felt like I needed to play a role I hadn't played in a long, long time. Big brother. It'll be okay. I tried to sound confident. Look, if Amos wanted to hurt us, he could have done it by now. Try to get some sleep. Carter? Yeah? 
It was magic, wasn't it? What happened to Dad at the museum? Amos's boat? This house? All of it's magic. I think so. I could hear her sigh. Good, at least I'm not going mad. Don't let the bed bugs bite, I called, and I realized I hadn't said that to Sadie since we lived together in Los Angeles when Mom was still alive. I miss Dad, she said. I hardly ever saw him, I know, but I miss him. My eyes got a little teary, but I took a deep breath. I was not going to go all weak. Sadie needed me. Dad needed us. We'll find him, I told her. Pleasant dreams. I listened, but the only thing I heard was Muffin meowing and scampering around, exploring her new space. At least she didn't seem unhappy. I got ready for bed and crawled in. The covers were comfortable and warm, but the pillow was just too weird. It gave my neck cramps. So I put it on the floor and went to sleep without it. My first big mistake. <laughs>